Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. It's Thanksgiving Recovery Week for our waistlines and for airlines. I'm Ben Baldanza. Welcome to Airlines Confidential, and I'm here with Chris Chimes. Chris, how was your holiday? Hey, Ben. It was great. First, uh, my kids were home, so that's always the priority. But uh, the ice cream on top of all that dessert was the Michigan Wolverine smacking down Ohio State on Saturday. A house full of Wolverine fans uh, finally got a moment, and it was very sweet. So we're happy about that. As for air travel, the closest I got to the airport was to pick up and drop off my daughter at DFW. And since it was a pretty quiet and uneventful week for U.S. airlines, I personally could relax not keeping a tally about airline delays and cancellations that we'd have to talk about on this week's show. Well, I totally agree with that last sentiment, Chris. Let's talk about the holiday week and other news and then get to our conversation with Rick Derlew, the Chief Commercial Officer for Pratt & Whitney. Okay, Ben. Well, let's, of course, start with Thanksgiving travel. You were in the air this past week, as were another 20 million other people. TSA expected to screen about that many people, which is comparable to Thanksgiving week in 2019. Uh, what were your observations? Well, my family and I flew two flights. We flew on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, which is traditionally a very busy day to travel. And we flew on the Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, which traditionally isn't all that busy, of course. We were nervous about the flight out. So we got to the airport very early, thinking that security lines would be very, very long. And we might be in security for 45 minutes or an hour or so. And we were surprised at Reagan National Airport when we got through security in about 10 minutes. There just weren't a lot of people there. And while I was pre-checked, because in my regular travel, that makes sense for me, my wife was not. So we went through the regular line and we were still through in about five or 10 minutes. And we were surprised at that. So we ended up probably buying an extra cup of coffee or two at the concessions <laughs> waiting for our flight. On the way back, the flight was as full but when we got to the airport, the airport wasn't nearly as full. Both of our flights were on time. And as I looked at the rest of the operations for all the airlines over the weekend, it looks like the airlines did a pretty good job. Not a lot of flight cancellations, not a lot of super delayed flights. And I think the industry has sort of stepped up somewhat. Now, we haven't gotten through the whole holiday yet as we're recording this. So it's possible that on Sunday, there's going to be some big disaster that we'll talk about next week. But as of now, things are looking pretty good. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, my world at the moment is DFW. I was out there, like I said, both to pick up and drop off my daughter, the drop off this afternoon on Sunday. Uh, it was busy, but it was calm. I could find a parking space. The departure boards were remarkably uneventful with almost all on-time departures on Sunday, which is often called the busiest travel day of the year or one of the media coverage likes to focus on the negative. You know, I was reading one story this afternoon. It was you know, quoting travelers saying 
the lines were long on security and I had to run to my gate and I'm thinking like, duh. I mean, it's Sunday after Thanksgiving. Airports are going to be busy. Lines are going to be long. Um, so expect those things. I saw one story early in the week about American getting, quote, slammed over 150 delays before Thanksgiving. And I thought that was way overblown. And that's called life in the airline business. And AA's operations, like virtually all the other airlines that I was watching, were pretty smooth. I had probably five or six people I talked to that came through DFW during the week and no one had any issues. So the world was watching and at least the U.S. travel community was watching. And in my mind, the airlines and their team stepped up and did what they were expected. It certainly seems like that. I'm also happy to say that at least on the two anecdotal flights I took, everything was smooth in terms of no passengers misbehaving, no flight attendants not showing up for work, you know, no skirmishes on board, things like that. It was a very easy two trips. And to get that over a busy holiday weekend when a lot of people did travel, I think says that maybe the airlines optimistically are learning how to deal with large volumes again after getting burned a bit this summer. Okay, so let's switch gears a bit. As we wrap up 2021, there's so much momentum and optimism about air travel in 2022. And then last week, the stock market had its worst day of the year with the news of the Omicron COVID variant out of Africa. Airline stocks were among the sectors that got the wind knocked out of them. Europe acted quickly to put some travel restrictions in place, and then the U.S. followed but not before the variant was identified in the UK, Belgium, Germany, and Hong Kong, amongst other geographies. Ben, I'm not going to ask you to predict the variant's path, but let's play fantasy airline CFO and investor relations for a moment. You like to play this game. What are you telling nervous investors right now? This is a tough one, Chris, and this industry seems to be taking you know two steps forward, one step back maybe in terms of recovery from the virus. Things start looking good, then something happens, and now it's Omicron. Also, you know, in the last couple of days, Anthony Fauci has come out and said that Omicron could be very dangerous this winter because it's still uncertain how fast it will spread. And it's also still uncertain how much current vaccines will protect against it. And he didn't go so far to say that, you know, there is going to be a problem. He just went so far to say that we don't know yet. Therefore, we have to plan as if there might be a problem. That's very tough language for a travel industry that's trying to come back. So I guess if I were a fantasy airline CFO and investor relations head, what I would tell my constituents is I would maybe take a look at my bookings. And if my bookings look strong, remind them that my bookings look strong, remind them that we carried a lot of passengers over Thanksgiving and people were interested in traveling to see family and the airline stepped up and was able to deliver those. We got more big leisure travel coming up in the second half of December for all the ways people celebrate those holidays and the industry's ready for that. And while we don't know what's going to happen with Omicron, we're just watching bookings and we're encouraged that people at least want to travel more. That's the kind of message I would send because I wouldn't know what else to say, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's clearly a bit of head scratching in any kind of response right now. I have to wonder, one, if the flight restrictions that were put in place are going to stick because it looks like it's probably too late. It's already spreading. 
And um, I'm not sure the flight restrictions that were put in place almost two years ago did anything to stop the growth. You know, there are protocols in place. I think at least for the U.S. airlines, they're moving very quickly, uh, if not getting they're moving very quickly to get their crews vaccinated. If they haven't done that already, they're almost there. Travelers are accustomed to the protocols as much as they may not like them. I think people are more and more willing, even though they're tired of wearing masks, they're more and more willing to get back to a routine. And if that involves wearing masks to do that, and for a little longer than expected, that might be the case too. But as Dr. Fauci said, COVID's not going to go away. There are going to be variations of this for a very long time. And so how the travel industry adapts, and specifically the airline industry, which is what we talk about here, is going to mean the difference with regard to being aggressive, being very clear with the process and the protocols, and like you said, pointing to the business and the demand and bookings and all those kinds of things. So nobody has an answer, but I think... um, what investors want to hear is some degree of straight talk and confidence more than anything else. I think that's right. Another thing that I saw this week on the news is I don't remember who said this, but they seem smart anyway, <laughs> which is when they they were saying when you cancel or quarantine flights from affected countries, but you don't stop the supply chain from those countries. So goods are still being delivered they said, well, then what's the point? You're not stopping the spread of the virus if you're keeping some goods moving in and among those countries in the U.S. So stopping the flights doesn't really do much. It might make people feel better and feel like you're doing something. And I don't know if that's technically accurate, but it seemed kind of smart to me. It seems shut everything down or let everything go. Don't shut some of it down. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like we were talking about a minute ago, clearly your vaccination status is going to be an important part of any discussion for a while now. I know there are going to be some listeners who don't like to hear that, but I think as this continues to evolve, that's going to be the reality. Well, more news in a minute, along with a chat with Richter Liu from Pratt & Whitney, which is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving up the next generation of more sustainable travel. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And thanks to TA Connections, which partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They offer their customers great inventory at great rates and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, the U.S. Department of Justice used the busy Thanksgiving week as the backdrop to announce a crackdown of sorts on the prosecution of unruly airline passengers. Why don't you uh, convince me not to be a cynic about this? Well, I don't think you should be a cynic about this. I think there should be prosecution of unruly airline passengers. You know, you remember when we had Mark Dombroff on a few weeks ago and we talked about his five-point plan. One of those five points was prosecute people who really break the law. And so if their laws broken, which include not following a flight attendant's order, 
I think there should be a crackdown on those. So I don't think you should be cynical, Chris. I think you should say, well, this is part of Mark's plan going into action. And that plan seemed reasonable. You know, they've had how many months to do this and they pick, you know, a photo op kind of a busy travel week to do it. So I wasn't impressed by that. Plus, are people really paying attention to news this week? I just don't understand why this is so hard. These these aren't like uh, forensic crimes that you're going to have to investigate who might have been the perpetrator here. It happens in broad daylight in front of hundreds of people on an airplane, lots of witnesses. So this just shouldn't be that hard. And it shouldn't have required a an announcement that they were going to enforce the law. But I hope they do. But it just seems like um, it was a long time in coming. Well, I agree with you. And as we talked with Mark about, you know, the FAA can impose a fine or suggest a fine, but it's the court system that has to take people through this. And we all know that sometimes the court system just takes a long, long time. So while we'd all like for every time we see someone who seems to do something really wrong, which you can see on a video or a report or something, and yet it still takes months and often years before you get to a conviction. I can't imagine why it would work faster for airline customers and whether it should work any faster than for even worse crimes. Well, we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential, including our chat with Rick Durlew of Pratt & Whitney. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Every week we talk about the leadership of Pratt & Whitney and their aircraft power system, so we're pleased to elaborate on that with a discussion this week with Richter Liu, Pratt & Whitney's Chief Commercial Officer. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Chris, Ben, thank you very much. It's great to be here on a great New England day here. Well, we always like to start these with a little bit of a self-introduction. So if you can tell our listeners about your career in aviation and specifically your role at Pratt & Whitney. Absolutely. So my role at Pratt & Whitney is I'm the chief commercial officer for Pratt & Whitney. That really entails running the entire customer business organization. Uh, I've been at Pratt for 23 years, always in a uh, customer-facing role. And the responsibility my team has is kind of broken into different parts, one being kind of account responsibility. So I have six different regions with vice presidents leading those regions that are responsible for the everyday uh, interaction with our airline customers and our lessor customers. And, And they do everything from new transactions with them to managing the relationship and right down to, to be honest with you, managing receivables. So that's kind of the the customer ownership piece of it. I also have the customer support organization. It's probably the biggest part of my team and probably the busiest these days. And they're responsible for all things customer. And by that, I mean, they're the field offices that we have around the world that live at our airline customers, our field reps. Um, We also have our 24-7 help desk that goes through that uh, organization. We also have our training centers. We have three training centers around the world here in in Connecticut, as well as one in Beijing, China, and one in India as well. And then lastly, part of that organization is PWEL, which is our Pratt & Whitney engine lease business. 
So they're responsible for managing all of our lease assets around the world with our customer base. And then lastly, I'd say we also have our, our marketing team embedded in that organization. So again, everything that's touching the customers kind of comes through our organization. Well, Rick, it's not a surprise then when I've heard a number of people say, if you wanted to get anything from Pratt & Whitney, you got to go see Rick Derlew. Well, I, I think, Ben, that's that's flattering, but I think I have the good fortune of having 10 executives uh, who support me, who do a fantastic job every single day. And, you know, these days, it's they say it takes a village, and it does take a village. Well, Rick, before we look ahead, let's talk about the last two years. What's been the impact from this pandemic on your company? Well, look, it's been an absolutely dynamic time for the entire industry. You know, I, I call this a light switch event, meaning, you know, we went from 100 miles an hour to zero back in mid-March 2020. I remember being at ISTAT at that time, early March, and, you know, it wasn't even that apparent how big of an impact this was going to have. So, you know, right, right out of the box, the first thing we, we did was was work with our customers, right? So our airline and leasing companies, kind of two pieces of it. One was they were trying to shore up cash, right? And so we had to work with them on payment terms and structures as such. The other is working closely with them because they were putting down airplanes. They needed our support in how they were doing long-term preservation. So a lot of energy around that. But it was it was a really dynamic time coming out of the box. And, you know, one of the things that we did as a company was we kind of doubled down on the GTF. By that, I mean, you know, we realized that it was an opportunity for us to take this very horrific event and try to upgrade our fleet. Right. As the airplanes weren't going to be operated, you know, we had a couple major retrofits, both on the accessory gearbox as well as the number three LPT stage blade. And we took this time to really to really work on that fleet. And, you know, it's really paid off today where the dispatch reliability of 99.97%, which is really world class. So we, you know, first and foremost, worked with our customers to get them through this difficult situation. And then, you know, we as a company had to do our own self-help, right? We had to look at our capital. We had to look at our E&D, our employees, you know, no different than the airlines. It has been an extremely difficult time. But I will say that, you know, I, I feel that that Pratt's really well positioned in this recovery. One of the things that happened during this this time was, you know, at the beginning of April, you know, UTC effectively came together with Raytheon and it caused us to spin off as separate companies, both Otis Elevators as well as Carrier Air Conditioning. And then we came together with Raytheon, creating four business units with under that Raytheon umbrella. So it was not only the impact of COVID and the pandemic and our customers in working with them, but it was also from a structural corporate perspective, there was a lot going on. Rick, if I can ask you to elaborate a bit on kind of the nuts and bolts of the the engine business, it's our sense, and I think most of our listeners understand that for the aircraft manufacturers, they get a lot of their revenue or most of their revenue from the sale or the lease of the aircraft. But engine manufacturers have you know these power by the hour agreements, and you recoup the revenue over the long term. So, how did that impact? How did that get, get impacted with COVID? Sure. Look, it 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 impacted us significantly, right? We we have a different, and by we I mean the engine manufacturers have a very different business model than the airframers. 
And, you know, it's, it's no secret that our engines are, are, are put out into the market, typically at a loss. And then we count on that revenue stream of the MRO business to bring that revenue and earnings back in. When the pandemic hit, it was kind of really traumatic for us. Just think about it. We typically would do a thousand V2500 shop visits, which is our biggest fleet out there powering the A320 CEO family. You know, that effectively was cut in half. And in addition, you're right, there's a lot of operators, if not all operators, put that fleet down. And so, you know, our, our pay-as-you-go or pay-at-shop visit arrangements with airlines is how we generate revenue. Obviously, when they're not flying, we're not generating revenue there. That, that's, that was kind of the, the biggest impact near term for us around cash flow and earnings. But again, as I mentioned earlier, despite that, we knew how traumatic this was for our end customers, our, our airline customers, and that we needed to be there and support them. And, you know, we do have the good fortune of having a very strong parent in, in Raytheon. So we're a pretty diverse aerospace company, which has both defense and commercial. So it, it actually was helpful to have that mix help us with a strong balance sheet to do not only survive this pandemic, but position us, invest in our GTF fleet and in our customers during this time. Rick, give us a sense of the aircraft power business for Pratt & Whitney, including like manufacturing in the U.S. versus abroad and your customer base and market share from the U.S. and abroad. Sure. Everywhere in the world you see Pratt & Whitney, right? Sure, absolutely. So, so right now, traffic and orders have been picking up, especially in the U.S., Europe, and China. You know, sales activity across the GTF family right now is probably at an all-time high. And, and, you know, GTF customers are in every major continent with the largest fleets today in North America, Europe, India, China, and Asia Pacific. You know, what's the most important to us is to have a strong and balanced order book. Today, with over 10,000 plus GTF engine orders and commitments for more than 80 customers, it makes us feel good. We like the product we're on, too. When we look at the A220 in the E2 on the low end of the narrow body market and the A321 on the high end, we think we're on the right product with those platforms to really, to really, you know, be there as this, this industry recovers. And so it's pretty exciting to have that product mix right now. I also would say we do have a very global manufacturing base. Like other big OEMs, we have really strong partnerships with MTU, Aero Engines, and the Japanese Aero Engine Corp, continuing over from the 320CO to our 320NEO. So that's an important piece of it. And then maybe in addition, you know, with sustainability and global supply chain concerns growing in importance, we're of course looking for options. And a really big step we made during this, this last 18 months was our recently announced uh, a new turbine uh, airfoil facility in Asheville, North Carolina that will help us to do a lot of the work under the same roof, which will allow us to reduce structural costs and our environmental footprint at the same time, along with a lot of time savings instead of moving parts around different facilities around the world. So a, a really big investment we made in 2020-21 timeframe. So let's lean in a little bit and look ahead. Um, your team told us you've got some big news today on the GTF engines you wanted to share. Can you tell us about that? 
Sure, sure. Let's start with, with the GTF, the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability benefits and dependable world-class operating costs. You know, across the NEO family, the A220 and the E2, GTF engines have been helping our customers in so many ways, not just from lowering operating costs, but from right-sizing operations, growing their business, and operating new longer routes, especially when Airbus comes out with a great airplane like the A321XLR, it really has a lot of value. And, you know, these engines have already saved 600 plus million gallons and 6 million metric tons of CO2 globally. And, you know, this is this is really important. And, you know, when we came out of the, out of the gate with our NEO GTF engine, we talked a lot about this 16% lower fuel burn program. You know, but today, you know, we've been talking a lot about it with our customers around the world. Today, we're taking that engine to the next level with a new configuration. We call this the GTF Advantage. It'll be, most, it'll be the most powerful engine for the A320neo family with up to 34K of takeoff thrust. This will be especially good for long-range aircraft like the A321XLR, as well as high and hot-altitude airports with A320neo family aircraft. So this really is a strong benefit for them. You know, it not only gives them that incremental thrust capability, but it also has another 1% improvement over the base model on fuel burn. And, and, you know, that's not just a cost savings, that's something that helps in our sustainability efforts. So that's the great thing about the GTF architecture is that we feel that we have a lot of runway to continue to improve this engine. So what does this all mean for our customers around the world? It makes the A320 family much more capable with cost and revenue benefits from that lower fuel cost, the higher payload range, as well as longer range in general. So a really exciting next step for us. That's very exciting, Rick. And being involved with an airline, as you know, that flies the Airbus equipment with Pratt engines, this is a real exciting development. Agree, agree. More with Rick Derlew in a moment. Today's podcast is brought to you in part thanks to the support of Seabury Capital Group, the finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Rick, in our last question, you brought up the idea of sustainability and how this new evolution of the GTF makes you even more sustainable. We've also talked on the show a bit about alternative fuels in commercial aviation and airlines experimenting with this. Is Pratt feeling hopeful on any alternative fuel source? And what are the concerns, if any, about how alternative fuels may impact maintenance demands on aircraft engines? Sure. So look, so we really think what we call sustainable aviation fuels, SAF, is really an important part of our future, right? So, you know, reducing the industry's consumption of fossil-based fuels is of central importance to reducing the carbon footprint of aviation around the world. To that, to that end, we continue to support and advance the drop-in solution of sustainable aviation fuel, or what, again, I call SAF. You know, our, our perspective is that robust SAF infrastructure really needs public funding to accelerate the development of affordable SAFs at the volume our industry needs. 
you know, today we already can run on a 50% blend of SAF with Jet 8, but we don't have the inventory to support even 10% of what's needed in today's flights around the world. So we need to, to increase that take rate as we develop the standards for 100% drop in SAF, which we really move the needle of the industry when it comes to reducing emissions and mitigating aviation's effect on the environment. And so, you know, that's that's something that's real important to us. And I can tell you, we're, we're within a few years of going 100% uh, SAF capable. And, you know, Ben, you asked about maintenance costs, and we've done, you know, an extreme amount of, of research and studies on this. And, and obviously, with most of our arrangements in Power by the Hours, this, this is obviously near and dear to us. And, and we don't see any significant impact to maintenance by using SAF in, in our engines. So, Rick, let's keep our foot on that sustainability pedal for a minute. I saw that Pratt & Whitney just recently appointed a chief sustainability officer. What else is on the roadmap for the industry to help achieve a net zero by, let's say, 2050? Sure. So, look, I think it's inevitable that we were going to do this. And Graham Webb was named our chief sustainability officer. And Graham's got decades of experience uh, in engineering and aerospace. So there couldn't be somebody better to help lead us through that. You know, our approach is smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business, which is a combination, we think, that can get us to net zero by 2050. You know, for our products, it's about using less fuel through more efficient engine technology and using better fuel than we just discussed. But that being said, in technology, we think sustainability starts with the gear. You know, the GTF engine isn't just about a gear. It's about an entire architecture of that engine. This is the most difficult thing to master, and we see others attempting it now, but we chose to do the hard part first, and we've had two decades of experience with this. You know, first, the gear gives us what inherently the quietest, lowest emissions, the highest efficiency architecture, and our fan drive gear system has been rock solid since day one. You know, second, you know, with each module of the engine operating at its optimal speed, we're able to squeeze every drop of efficiency from the advanced aerodynamics and material that we already have today. And from that, we have even more advanced materials and systems coming in the future. All of this opens up new design space with decades of potential ahead, which we're demonstrating today with GTF Advantage. You know, I can tell you that, you know, I really see it as three steps for us. You know, first, what have we done already? You know, with GTF, we've brought that fuel savings into the marketplace already, enabling airlines to continue to grow. And we're making that even better, as I mentioned, with the advantage. We're also, you know, in the, in the, in the interim, looking at SAF 50%. We know that's a big piece of it. You know, our Pratt Canada uh, to the north are looking at hybrid aviation as well, hybrid electric. I think everyone knows that. And then longer term, you know, we talked about it earlier. It's really getting the feedstock to support that that SAF at a reasonable market-based price for airlines, along with enough capacity to support the airlines 100%. That's great, Rick. Let's talk about sales now. Based at least on the recent Dubai Air Show, it seems like Airbus is continuing to outpace Boeing for new sales in at least the narrow-body or single-aisle market. How good is this for Pratt? Do you see this continuing? Well, yeah, I do. As I mentioned earlier, we're, we're seeing some of the most significant activity we've we've seen to date on the GTF program, you know, and, and we're happy to contribute to the success of the A320 family. We're also excited to see an uptick of interest in the A220 
and the E2 as well. But of course, the airline industry does well with healthy competition. You know, I wouldn't count Boeing out of the long term. Of course, we look forward to powering one of their future planes with the next iteration of our geared turbo engines. But, you know, I, I think Airbus has done an incredibly good job. And as everyone knows, they're always looking to us engine manufacturers to try and see what additional we can do from production rates as well. Well, it sounds like you're winding down 2021 with lots of optimism for 2022. Uh, where do you see the biggest opportunities for Pratt? So I can tell you that we at Pratt are incredibly excited about 2022, not just to get 2020 and 2021 behind us, but we do see a lot of opportunity. And look, we've been very transparent around our early teething challenges. It's well known, well documented, but the maturity and reliability of the engines we produce today and that come from our MRO shops are best in class. That's that investment I talked about earlier that we did during the downturn of 2021. Now, th this has put our operators in a very strong position as the traffic recovers, which should make for a strong 2022 and beyond. You know, with more than 11 million engine flight hours on the GTF already, we're happy to say that the fan drive gear system has been nearly flawless in its architecture and is proven. That's put us in a very strong position for future platforms, as well as future campaigns as we support our airline customers and lessors around the world. Well, Rick, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show, telling us and our listeners about all the great things going on at Pratt. And I certainly can't let you leave without giving you a personal thanks for your support of this show over the last year. Your support has allowed the show to be able to grow, reach more and more listeners, and hopefully more and more buyers of the Pratt GTF. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. And it's been an absolute pleasure to support you guys as well. It's it's an important thing, especially in, in this time of Zoom and, and Teams and podcasts. It's a way a lot of our industry people get to hear what's going on. So I, I thank you guys for this opportunity and wish for your continued success. Rick, Rick, talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in just a moment. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Hope you enjoyed that great talk with Rick as we continue to work to bring you a diverse group of industry voices and expertise to the podcast. Now we want to take your questions. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the props. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, let's start with this question that isn't about the industry, but about the podcast. It's from Alex in Wilmington, Delaware. Guys, I'm loving the move to regular guests joining the podcast. Maybe they're just tired of hearing you and me, Chris. <laughs> Your interview with David Neilman was great, and getting a 30-minute unfiltered and thoughtful conversation is great stuff for those of us who love following the airline industry. I'm wondering if you could give us a heads up about guests or solicit our listener questions for your interviews. 
Alex, great idea, great thought, but I think at this point the answer is probably not in that uh, it's a somewhat complicated process, booking guests, confirming guests, they change at the last minute, they get added at the last minute, and we really don't have a staff. It's Ben and I and uh, Charlie Shapiro, our producer, uh, getting this uh, show produced every week, and so that just adds a level of complication that I wish we could address, but at this point we can't. But I, I love the idea and I appreciate your writing in and I like the fact that you love the guests. So we're going to keep doing that and unfortunately can't accommodate that request. Chris, I like that answer and I think it's right. I would say, however, that what do you think about the idea of on the website having people offering their suggestions of who they'd like to see interviewed? And then we can decide whether, you know, well, we already talked to that person, go back and listen to this podcast, or maybe there are people out there that would be really interesting to us and the listeners that you and I don't know yet. What do you think of that idea? Not necessarily questions, but it'd be great if someday you interviewed X, who is the Y at Z company. I I love that. Um, We are getting suggestions via the email box. So please keep those coming. And we're also getting uh, requests and pitches. So that's always a good thing to know that people want to come on the podcast. So we'll continue to evolve this and uh, welcome your input. So I think that's that's a fair compromise there. Great. Ben, we also have a question specifically related to the David Nealman interview from last week. It's from Courtney in Chicago. Guys, I enjoyed your interview with David Nealman. I'm an MBA student and I'm hopeful of getting an offer from an airline after graduation. I was interested in your reaction to Mr. Nealman's comments about the importance of startups not having a lot of competition on nonstop routes. Is that the only way to be successful? How many of those new routes still exist? And that doesn't sound like something an airline can control. That's a great question, Courtney, and congratulations on getting your MBA and wanting to work in the airline industry. Good luck with that. I think what David was saying is it's easier when there's no nonstop competition. And in fact, for many years, when I, as the CEO of Spirit, would present at investor conferences, I was usually either preceded by or followed by someone from Allegiant, because they always put us next to each other, it seems. And one of the stats that Allegiant always showed was the percentage of their routes that had no nonstop competitor. And it was always a very high number in the 80% plus range. And so Allegiant clearly has been successful by picking routes that other people don't fly. Now they do that with a model where they only fly two or three times a week to a lot of places. So when David said that, I thought that was an interesting comment that that was important. Obviously, when he started WestJet, he flew a lot of the routes that Air Canada flew. And when he started JetBlue, there's almost no place JetBlue could fly out of New York that someone wasn't already flying out of New York. So maybe this was um, a new theory for a new startup airline in the U.S. going on what Allegiant has had a lot of success with. Courtney, I think your intuition is correct. There probably aren't that many of those kind of routes that are likely to be successful. When a route is not flown nonstop by someone, it's not because the planning people in all those airlines haven't looked at it. You know, it's not like they 
didn't think, well, maybe we could fly from Providence to St. Augustine or something like that. It's that they sort all the opportunities based on known demand data, based on population data, based on other competitive information they have, sometimes using even more creative sources like telephone data or remittance data if it's an international route. And they sort these and think, here are the best options for us to put these planes based on where's the highest likelihood that we'll be able to generate the best demand for these flights. So I think David's strategy is a good one. I'm just not sure that he can build his own airline only on that. But maybe what he was saying between the lines is we'll have a mix of things that compete directly with airlines and a mix of things that are unique to us. And in that way, we'll be a little bit more defensible. One of the challenges that any smaller airline has is if they just choose to fly head to head against a much larger airline, it's relatively easy for that airline, that larger airline, to match fares, to bulk up on frequency and provide more seats. And it's hard to sort of get a foothold in a market that is already being served by other carriers. So his idea of finding places that aren't being served, the plus is maybe the big guys will ignore you for a while. The downside is there are only so many of those places and not every one of them are going to turn into great routes. And if you'll notice, just a few months after Breeze started, they canceled some of the flying they were doing out of Richmond, Virginia. That was an example of they picked some routes out of Richmond. There wasn't a lot of nonstop flying out of Richmond, and they started flying to a number of places, and they've kept some of those, but they pulled some of those back because some worked and some didn't. And that's what you'll see Breeze doing if they continue to search for flights that no one else flies nonstop. My guess is You'll see them at an investor conference sort of promoting this stat like Allegiant did, but eventually they're going to have routes that compete with other airlines and maybe some that are unique to them. Yeah, I agree with that. I I didn't hear him say that the only way to be successful is to pick those routes as much as it's a lot easier when you don't have competition on, on those routes. The other thing I was thinking about as he was talking and then when this question came in from Courtney was reading something a few years back about successful startups and it's not about startups in the airline business but just successful startups in general they are more successful when they solve a problem rather than trying to simply create demand and so i viewed david's strategy with regard to looking at new routes as opportunities as it's solving a problem that there wasn't nonstop service on this particular route, and he was solving a consumer problem, just like they're solving other consumer problems with technology and watching TV and other kinds of things. So there was always a demand for people needing to get somewhere in a car. Uber didn't create demand as much as solve a problem with the app and connecting drivers and riders. So I just viewed David's philosophy as trying to solve a problem for air travelers that leads to success. That's a great way to think of it, Chris. And I think that's exactly what David was saying. Now that I hear you say it in that way, I think that's right. Well, Finer Wine is next. 
But the best way not to whine about airport security lines is to get clear, which makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. Chris, this finer wine is from Margaret in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm very frustrated with the Southwest website. They were advertising a fare sale, and you can only book on their website or app, but the low fares being advertised were not available. I feel like if they're going to continue to promote the sale fares, they should be available. Chris, is this a fine or a wine? <laughs> it's, sorry, Margaret, this is an age-old wine. Airfares change rapidly. The availability and the inventory changes rapidly, and especially some of the pricing that I've seen Southwest and JetBlue specifically running on some fare sales recently, things are moving very quickly. So while they might have loaded up some $39 and $69 fares out of Louisville, some of that stuff is going to get gobbled up pretty quickly. So I can understand your frustration, but it's generational wine from every air traveler going back to deregulation, unfortunately. Chris, I think that's right. This is a wine. I will also point out that often when sale fairs are promoted, they use words like limited, and they often are not on every single route. So it's possible, I'm not saying Margaret did this, but it's possible, for example, that she wanted to fly from Louisville to Chicago, and Chicago wasn't on the sale list that Southwest was promoting with the low fares. And I don't know if that's true, but that could have been true. Whereas you get the impression that, oh, my flight's going to be on sale, but it's possible that flight wasn't even part of the sale. Yeah. When I looked after the sale was announced uh, for some personal travel, you know, there were lots of 6 a.m. departures that had sale prices, but not kind of premium middle of the day kinds of travel opportunities. And again, late at night, and that's why they're on sale. Well, as we wrap up the show, my shout out goes to Ayata, who have called for simplification of COVID-19 travel rules. They're asking and calling on governments to adopt simple, predictable, and practical measures to safely facilitate the ramping up of international travel as borders reopen, especially what we just talked about, the new the new variant coming on. Ayata is saying, let's be simpler about this. And there was a stat in their announcement that just shocked me, Chris. They said that there are have been over 100,000 COVID-19 related measures have been implemented by governments worldwide. So when you think about all the places you can travel and all the different governments making rules, I applaud Ayata for saying, let's help the travel industry, let's help the economy come back by just finding ways to simplify all this. They're not saying don't have restrictions. They're saying when you have restrictions, use common language, use easy to understand language. So go Ayata. I hope governments listen to you. I do too. It's a laudable initiative. I know, again, in the cruise business, sometimes people don't want to hear me talk about these things. In the cruise business, as we're going from destination to destination in the Caribbean, for example, each island has different protocols. We can't even get them to coalesce around comparable protocols. So 
having consistency would be great. My shout out's going to go on a personal level to a friend of many people in the industry who's retiring this week. Spencer Dickerson is the executive vice president at the American Association of Airport Executives. He's been a longtime leader in the airport community, lots of friends and admirers across the business. And after a very impressive career leading a number of functions at AAAE, Spencer's going to be retiring this week. So I wish him and his wife, Carol, all, all the best. And thanks for all the leadership. Great shout out, Chris. We hope everyone has a great week and we'll see you next week. Thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.